Morning, everyone. We've got a second reading this morning. Trinity read that reading from Philippians, and we're going to be thinking about that, but we're also going to be thinking about a passage that Alan read to us last week. It's from Colossians um, chapter 1, beginning at verse 15, where um, Paul writes this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Amen. There are some things that bring to most people, I think, a sense of wonder, maybe a sense of awe, that might make us exclaim, wow, that is just amazing. What about, for instance, the birth of a baby? How did two tiny cells coming together in a mother's body grow and develop and produce a new baby? who will grow up to adulthood? Or what about a seed, something that's so small, that looks like it's dead, yet when planted in the ground and water grows into a plant, producing flowers, fruit, even a tree? It's amazing, isn't it? Again, how does a swallow find its way on its migration journey of thousands of miles between southern Africa and the UK? How does a bird that weighs about 20 grams cope with that journey twice a year? What about the vast array of stars and planets that we see just a tiny part of when we manage to get away from the streetlights that obscure them? A vast number that when we see them may make us awestruck. Just some of the things that I think give most people a sense of wonder that make us exclaim, wow, that is just amazing. But one more thing that I believe should make us exclaim, that is amazing, that is awesome, is the birth of Jesus into our world. Here coming into our world was the one through whom The world was made. The word made flesh and dwelling among ordinary people like you and me. In the words of Charles Wesley, 
our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. That is what is known as the incarnation. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's what Alan preached on last week when he spoke on Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. It's what's summed up in verse 19 of Colossians chapter 1. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Christ. God was pleased to have all his fullness live in Jesus. But as we read on in the Colossians passage, we find Paul writing that God was not just pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, but also that through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself. Now this phrase about God reconciling all things to himself maybe needs a bit of explanation. It's the contention of Christianity, the creation has become alienated from its creator. And that that alienation has happened because of humankind's rebellion against God. The choice of men and women to go their own way, living without reference to God. It's an alienation that shows itself in many ways, in behaviour and words and attitudes that are selfish, unloving, unkind. In things that are bad, even evil, the sort of things that we read about far too often in our news day by day. The way the Bible describes this is that humankind has become enemies of God. We have fallen out with God big time. Fallen out with a God who loves us and longs for relationship with each one of us. It's a path that men and women, like you and me, have chosen to take. It's described in the Bible often as sin. Now, falling out between people is pretty common. And it's easy to find stories on the internet about how sometimes neighbours fall out, maybe over noise or things that have found their way into the other person's garden, or perhaps hedges that have overgrown, you know, the curse of the, of the Leylandii. And it's fairly easy to find stories on the internet about how members of families have fallen out, perhaps over an inheritance, over how processions are distributed. And perhaps you don't need me to, uh, you don't need to search on the internet for such examples. You may know of those things from your own bitter experience. Although it's easy to find examples, accounts of families or neighbours have fallen out, it's less easy to find stories of how relationships have been repaired after a falling out, how people have been reconciled. In terms of our relationship with God, Reconciliation is wonderfully possible because God has made it possible. Through the death of Jesus on the cross, listen to how Paul describes what has happened to the Colossian Christians. This is Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 
1.22 in the Good News translation. At one time, you who were far away from God and were his enemies because of the evil things you did and thought, but now, by means of the physical death of his son, God has made you his friends. Reconciliation, becoming friends with God through what Jesus did on the cross. The phrases that come in verses 20 and 22, which in the NIV read of God making peace through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, being reconciled by Christ's physical body through death, speak of how the death of Christ was a violent end to a flawless life. They speak of Jesus giving his life as a sacrifice for sin. And because it was death on a cross, they speak of him being under a curse, accepting the curse that was due to us. And so the experience of the Colossians becoming friends with God can be an experience for us all. I know it is for many of us here. You may know something of the life of the 19th century poet Elizabeth, Elizabeth Barrett. In her youth, Elizabeth had been watched over by her tyrannical father. When she and Robert Browning were married, their wedding was held in secret because of the father's disapproval. After the wedding, the Brownings sailed for Italy, where they lived for the rest of their lives. But even though her parents had disowned her, Elizabeth never gave up on the relationship. Almost weekly, she wrote letters to them. Not once did they reply. After 10 years, she received a large box in the mail. Instead, inside, she found all the letters, not one of them opened. Had her parents only read a few of them, their relationship with Elizabeth may have been restored. There was no reconciliation between Elizabeth and her parents, not for want of trying on Elizabeth's part, but because of the intransigence of her parents. Reconciliation between each of us and our loving Father in heaven is wonderfully possible if we will only by faith receive what God has done for us in Christ on the cross. We need to be aware, beware, not of the intransigence of the Father, but of our own pride and intransigence if we refuse the reconciliation on offer. Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 5, makes this appeal. I implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. If any of you here have never received that reconciliation offered by God through Jesus, don't delay. Buttonhole one of the leaders or the prayer team afterwards to find out how to receive that reconciliation, how you can find peace with God. But maybe it's not just an appeal to those 
who have not yet made that personal step of faith, but to any of us who feel that we have strayed from God and are at odds with him. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Reconciliation between God and each individual person is really, really important. But Paul writes more of more than that. He writes, and this is going back to verse 20 of Colossians 1, through Jesus, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. We tend to think of what Jesus accomplished on the cross in terms of individuals, but it goes much wider than that. The reconciliation of humankind to God has a knock-on effect on all creation. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 21 in um, the New Living Translation. All creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with the eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Tom Wright sees it like this. It's not a matter of God claiming a world that didn't belong to him or making a new one out of nothing, but of reconciling his own world to himself, his beautiful, beloved creation, after long years of corruption and decay. So the first main thing about God the Son, Jesus, that I want to say this morning that I'm focusing on, is that in him, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And that reconciliation was through the death of Jesus on the cross. God has reconciled us through the death of Jesus in his physical body. Now, in the eyes of some, the death of Jesus on the cross was just a tragic and unjust death of a good man, a defeat of good and a triumph for evil. But of course, it wasn't the end of Jesus' story or his ministry, for he was raised from death and ascended to the Father. And this is where we concentrate on the passage from Philippians that Trinity read towards the beginning of the service. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. In that passage, Paul writes of how Jesus' death was part of his obedience to the Father. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But then Paul writes of how God the Father vindicated Jesus' obedient trust in him by exalting him to the highest place, that is, with God. 
Now, Paul doesn't explicitly mention the resurrection in the Philippians passage. He jumps straight from the death of Jesus to his ascension and exaltation. But although it's not mentioned it's ex- it's explicitly, it is implicit in what Paul writes. The crucified Son of God was raised from the dead. And then... Um, and the ascension and, and the, sorry, the resurrection and the ascension and the exaltation was um, God's way of affirming that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was just what was needed to defeat sin and evil and death. I've heard it put like this as a boxing analogy. On the cross, Jesus delivered the knockout blow to evil, to the devil. At the resurrection, God lifts up Jesus' hand, declaring him to be the victor. Now, I haven't time to look at, uh, 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 talk about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. If you need to look at that, there are plenty of books about it. Um, the ones that I've, I've come across, there's Michael Green's excellent small paperback, Man Alive, through to a much, much weightier tome by uh, N.T. Wright, The Resurrection of the Son of God, with I Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus by George Eldon. They've come in somewhere in between the two. That, now, I know they're all worth reading, um, and there are probably, these are fairly old now, but they are still... Uh, available, but they, um, I'm sure there are more modern books as well. So if you, if you need to, do grab hold of one of those. But in Philippians chapter 2, Paul takes the resurrection of Jesus as, as read, and he skips to the ascension and exaltation. God elevated Jesus to the place of highest honour, gave him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The Apostle Peter, in a sermon not very many weeks after the death and resurrection of Jesus, at the Jewish festival of Pentecost, summarises this to the Jewish people with these words. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The Jewish people listening to Peter's sermon would know what he meant by those terms, Lord and Christ, that he uses for Jesus. But for us, they may need a bit more explanation. So we'll take them in the reverse order. Firstly, understanding what the term Christ means. We tend to use it as a surname for Jesus. Like I am Ian Charles, so Jesus is Jesus Christ. But that's not really correct. Christ is a title designating a role. It comes from the Greek Christos, which is the equivalent of the Jewish term Messiah. So it would be better for us to speak of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, 
But that only gets us a little way. For we need to understand who the Messiah is, what the term Messiah means. The Jewish people looked for and longed for a promised king who would reign in the kingdom of God. The Messiah reigning in a kingdom where their enemies would be defeated. A kingdom of justice, security, peace. The Messiah would be the anointed one in a similar sense to the way the kings of Israel were anointed. As we read in the Old Testament, for instance, when Samuel anointed first Saul and then David as the first two kings of Israel, they were God's appointed people for that role. And the Messiah would be a worthy king, so unlike many of the kings that Israel had. He would rule with fairness. He would look after his people as a shepherd looks after their sheep. So, says Peter, Jesus is Messiah, the longed-for king. God's anointed, the one whom God appointed to rule over his kingdom. Similarly, he is Lord. In the part of the world that was controlled by the Romans in the time of Christ, the person who would be called Lord by most people would be the Emperor, Caesar. He was the one in charge. He was the one at the top of the tree. But the radical thing that the early Christians declared and suffered for was that it was Jesus who is Lord, not Caesar, not any other earthly king or ruler. So perhaps, perhaps particularly to the Jewish people, the early Christians declared Jesus is the Messiah, Perhaps particularly to the non-Jewish people, they declared he is Lord. God has made this Jesus, who was crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So that's the second main thing I want us to focus on this morning. That Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And one day everyone, everything on earth and heaven will acknowledge that to be true. Listen again to the words of Paul. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. This time from the Good News translation. In honour of the name of Jesus, all beings in heaven, on earth, and in the world below, will fall on their knees and will openly proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the call on us who have heard the gospel, who have heard something of it even this morning, is now to acknowledge with our lips and in our lives that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. To acknowledge not just that Jesus is Lord in what we sing or say, but to aim to live our lives in ways that please him. To study his teaching and the teaching of the apostles in order to do that and to commit our allegiance to Jesus above everything else. So it's my first call, I hope, speaking out what is God's call to us is be reconciled to God. My second call, again, I hope, speaking out 
what is God's call to us, is confess Jesus as Lord. Commit or recommit your life to him. Now there's so much more that I could say about Jesus, God the Son. When I was planning this sermon, I thought I would also speak about how Jesus is the one who baptises in the Holy Spirit. That's the evidence of how um, um, Jesus was exalted. Um, you read that in Acts 2, verse 33. I was also going to speak about how Jesus is our advocate in heaven. Speaking to God on our behalf. I was also going to speak of how Jesus pleads for us, intercedes for us. And also about his coming again. Coming, what does the creed say? To judge the living and the dead. But I haven't time to look at all of those things. So let's just concentrate what I have looked at. So that if you have heard God speaking to you, calling up to take his offer of friendship, be reconciled to him, or if God is calling you to commit or recommit your life to Christ, then please respond today. If you feel you need to pray with someone, there will be people at the front here afterwards who are willing to do that. Just ask someone otherwise to point you in the direction of a church leader. This, Christ, this Jesus, who was crucified, is also both Lord and Messiah. Amen. Before we come to communion, we're going to sing again a song that reminds us of the death of Jesus. Sorry, I've lost the title of it here. I cast my mind to Calvary. So we'll stand to sing when the musicians start playing. Deep breath.